Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today is my great privilege to be joined by Michael P. Winship, author of Hot Protestants, A History of Puritanism in England and America, published by Yale University Press in 2018 and soon to come out in paperback. Michael Winship is the E. Morton Coulter Professor of History at the University of Georgia. Michael, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Well, congratulations on the wonderful book. Um, I'm really excited to get into it with you. But before we do, I wonder if you would be willing to share with us a little bit about your training and career and how that led you to the project of Hot Protestants. No, okay. Well, it all started when my brother sent me a copy of Perry Miller's um, New England Mind. I knew nothing about Puritans before that. I read that. I thought that, wow, that's a really fantastic book. Um, then I started reading more about it. I was a high school teacher at the time, and I gained the idea that I wanted to go back to college. And I had I had in my mind a a dissertation topic worked out, which in fact became Series of God. Only I the the main title for that was actually Worlds of Wonder, which I was really pleased with. And then David Hall came out with his book and killed that as an option. And and that's where Series of God came from. And then it's just sort of snowballed from there. I mean, I think I think if there's if the shtick that led me to being asked to um, write hot Protestants was that I always had I had I always was conceiving of this as a transatlantic movement, and you couldn't really understand what was going on in America unless you had a really good grasp of what's going on in England. And then the other thing is, I started looking at stuff in America. What I discovered was that the secondary literature in England wasn't actually asking the answering the questions that. I was trying to find out about, which led me to produce, um, you know, a reasonable amount of articles on English, English Puritanism, and it would always play a, a large role in my books. And so in, I think it was 2006, um, Heather McCullen got the idea, the, the Yale person got the idea that they wanted a general history of Puritanism. And so she contacted me because it was supposed to be both sides of the Atlantic. And like, you know, I was one of the few people who actually did that. And, and I said, sure. She said it was supposed to be for general readers. And I actually like that challenge. I like the challenge of, of like, how do you write a book which someone who's not an academic will pick it up? It's about Puritans, which is already kind of scary. And, and you know, will they, how will they experience this as like really good stories which are sort of gently leading them to the points that I want to actually get across. And so that, that challenge intrigued me. The other thing that intrigued me about it was that she had, um, she had said that this was supposed to end around 1660, which is like standard for histories of Puritanism. And mm-hmm. I think is like, that's all wrong. That that's just that Puritanism doesn't end in 1660. And this, this division between the restoration and, the preceding period is artificial. And, and so, and, and that, that, 
that just that's just wrong. It's wrong for for America. It's like like long argument is sort of England drops out during the Civil War. It's just not there anymore. And in in, in English historiography, it's the Puritans are magically transformed into nonconformists with with who are just like looking forward to the day when they can all just be tolerant. And and so I wanted this to go up to um, the 1690s just to show that you could do it. That 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 1660 line, which which just so many people seem to treat like the Berlin Wall or something, is is it's just it's not there. And so so in term in terms of of in terms of a contribution to the literature for academics, I mean that was you know that's what I was mainly thinking. I, hey guys, you can actually Puritanism's not over. That's excellent. You know. Uh, the the reader who picks up your book, I think the first thing they're going to notice is the very provocative title, "Hot Protestants." Where does that term come from? And and are, are you trying to refer to you know sexy Protestants? No, no. Okay, okay. Look, look. Um, hot Protestants was a term which which one man used in in what was it? I forget the date, fifteen eighty or something. It's the the hotter sort of Protestants are called Puritans. And I think, wow, that's a great title. I want general readers to read this book. If if it doesn't have something that grabs them, it will, you know, it will actually, you know, it just, it won't work. So Hot Protestants was a way to go. And the other thing about that was it actually set off a kerfuffle among the Yale, the Yale, Yale people who a number of them thought this, this is just this is wrong. They will just think of sexy Protestants and that's a bad thing. But, um, but Heather was totally behind me. And in fact, it, you know, it did the kind of work I wanted it to do. That's great. I know it's it's provoked a few conversations from people who've walked by as I've had it on my on my desk in the last few days as I've been reading it. Which, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. I, you know, I mean, that's that's the whole point of it. I mean, it makes a point. You know, it makes a point about them too. It, you know, these these are these are extremely zealous people, and so you know, that's two birds with one stone. I can defend it in all seriousness, but it was a marketing ploy. <laughs> That's right. Well, this this book, Hot Protestants, it covers a sweeping century and a half. Puritanism is is a is a complex religious, social, and political movement. So, what were some of the the main themes that you wanted to draw out in your telling of this story? What did you sense was maybe missing or or underexplored in the available stories of Puritanism? Well, what was I mean? A, a lot of the book, if you know the literature really well, you you will know a lot of the book. I tried to um, throw in some stories which really interested me, which I thought that specialists wouldn't know about, and so the general reader is thinking, "Oh, this is a nice story," and the specialist is going, "Wow, I didn't know about that. And that's interesting." But um, the main thing was precisely that divide that that it stops at sixteen sixty, and it shouldn't. And one of the things, the problem with that is that. Um, that moderate Puritans, you know, aka Presbyterians from 1640 onward, they just have disappeared from the history of the historiography of the Civil Wars hmm. and 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 the and the 1650s. And so it's like, because all all of the, you know, the things that are sexy are the radicals. Yeah. And so it's like you, you can find any any you know lunatic somewhere and and someone will write a book on them. <laughs> yeah, but but the thing is, is that most Puritans were not Congregationalists. They were certainly not Levelers or Seekers or Quakers. You know, the 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 mass of them, if they they gravitated towards Presbyterianism, and so that's that's what the the book wanted to establish a kind of spine 
of, of Presbyterianism going from the 1640s to, to 1692 or so. And just, and, you know, so, hey guys, it's here and it's important. And then, and then with that spine came the other thing of, of, you know, Puritans didn't want there to be Congregationalists and Presbyterians. And it's, it's the sort of the tortured attempts of the, the two groups to try to, um, you know, reconcile themselves right up to the neonomian controversy of the 1690s, where, where it, you know, falls apart because of longstanding tensions. Plus, it gave me a chance to, do, to actually start a chapter with, with a guy getting beheaded, one Puritan cutting off another Puritan's head, which was irresistible. Yeah, and, and hard to forget. Yeah, exactly. And Chris, Chris I mean, the, okay, Christopher Lay was, who was it? Um, Blair Warden in 1972 said, we actually need a monograph on Christopher Love, the guy who got his head cut off, mm-hmm. because he's a Presbyterian activist, and it's kind of a big deal that Cromwell ends up chopping his head off. You know, and here we are at 20, 2021, and there still isn't a proper study of Christopher Love. Wow. And so... Part of this is a signal to to um, you know people. Hey, this is all stuff you've got to look at more. That's excellent. Well, let's let's start with with the first section of of this book, which is something of of, of the origin stories of Puritanism, which which you really locate right at the at the dawning of the English Reformation, uh, especially with the figure of John Hooper. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know very kind of generally, how do we get from John Hooper uh, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony? Um, what are some of the tensions that, that start early in the English Reformation that continue to flower until Puritanism really has its, its proper uh, heyday in the, in the, in the 17, mid-17th well, century? Well, the, you know, the, the term Puritans used is like the Church of England is only halfly Reformed. And and Hooper is is the first, you know, one of the very first ones in the 1540s when it's happening. They, you know, we're not moving far enough. We haven't gotten rid of all this these Catholic accoutrements. And and he also he has an idea of we, you know, the discipline in our church isn't good enough. We're letting sinners off the hook too much, or we're not, you know, dealing with them the right way. And so he, you know, he 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 is a big deal in the 1640s and 1540s rather. And to be completely honest, he gets burnt in the 1550s, which gives you another opportunity for a, you know, an interesting slice of biography, which you're not likely to forget. He starts as a mon- he starts as a monk, and so you 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 introduce you introduce the whole idea of, you know, I, I have very very little space to explain the before, mm-hmm. before the Reformation, and and. He's a vehicle to do that because I can talk about him in his monastery and the visitor from Henry VIII coming. And so they get so the reader will get a flavor of the before without actually, you know, without thinking, oh, my gosh, this is an academic telling me what happened before, because it's a seamless story. You're following Hooper through these issues, you know, which which kick off the Reformation. And then these are issues that. Puritans are going to be dealing with for the next 150 years, trying to reform the Church of England. So he he was he just it was a really, really good story, which introduces the issues about the Church of England is just not reformed properly. And so we, we've got to get it going. I mean, I may be talking more about the author's tricks, but I mean, but this is all 
you know, I, I had a bunch of different openings for the book before I finally realized, wow, Cooper is doing an awful lot of work. Yeah. I can cover an awful lot of territory with Worker, with Hooper, without it sounding like I'm, be, I'm being, you know, didactic, mm-hmm. which, is, which is one of the points of the way it's written. That's right. So this group of, of um, reformers who don't feel like the, the Reformation in England is moving fast enough, they, um, they find them, many of them find themselves in exile when Mary comes to the throne and then coming back into England when Elizabeth, um, the, the Protestant uh, queen, comes back. And so what are some of the things that are motivating this group of, of recently returned Puritan exiles having spent some time with the, the reformers on the continent um, during the end of the, the, the 16th century? Well, they want they want to continue the Reformation, and they had initially hoped that Queen Elizabeth was going to be with them, and then they have an awfully hard time dealing with the fact that she isn't, and then you get and then because the the you know political structures in England are so decentralized, they start to take the Reformation in their own hands, mm-hmm. and so you again you you pick you pick up you know I I picked one particular you know, Northampton, where all kinds of interesting things are happening, where they're trying to do a decentralized reformation. And then, you know, the, the local bishop gets wind of it, tries to smush it, but he's, he's too late because there's just, there are all kinds of seeds planted, which keep going on. Also, at this point, there, there is a sort of growing, you know, this isn't exactly the right word, but the counter-reformation where, where Elizabeth and some people around them are deciding that, that, the Puritans are not only a religious threat, they're actually a political threat to monarchy, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, this is their words. It's, it's like, it's, it's not me projecting it into it. It's like, it's their, they're starting to reach the conclusion that the kind of monarchy they want is not compatible with what these, these, these religious fanatics are doing. And, and then this, this, is a, this is a thing which ebbs and flows because the Puritans regard themselves as Queen Elizabeth's most loyal subjects, which <laughs> she can't quite grasp. And so that becomes a, a thread which, which, you know, leads to the colonization of Massachusetts, and it leads eventually to the Civil War. That's right. You know, uh, another instance of, of the Puritans assuming that a monarch was going to be on their side, um, but turns out to be less interested in their project than they thought comes next with, with James. Can you talk a little bit about um, James's relationship with these Calvinist divines? Well, I, James, James came from a church, came from a church that was fundamentally had everything that Puritans wanted. Yeah. Which is, which is why it's, it's, can be complicated to use the word Puritan to describe the um, Church of Scotland. And I, I do, I mean, one of the things I, must, I find most compelling is the idea that Puritanism happens to the Church of Scotland in the 1620s. When they actually do start at behaving like Puritans, they set up conventicles, they, you know, they're actually moving outside the official structures of the church because of the things that the English monarchs are doing to them. But so, so, and James would occasionally, because James was a, a slippery politician, would make really nice noises to the quasi-Presbyterians of Scotland, which gave the, you know, the Puritans in England the totally wrong idea of what's going to happen to them when he shows up in England. So they get, they get their hopes up. And then in 1603, there's the famous Hampton Court conference where, where James famously says, no bishop, no king. 
So, you know, you're just, you're just not going to get Geneva in, in England. And it turns out, I mean, his bark is, is, it turns out is a lot worse than his bite, but there's still that, you know, starts to raise the stake for a number of Puritans about how do we deal with this? Yeah. And so some of those Puritans, um, as, as the, the bite does start to start to increase, um, in with James and, and with his, uh, son Charles and his appointment of the, the arch, the, well, the then Bishop of London, who becomes the Archbishop, um, William Laud. Some of them start to leave for the Netherlands. What causes that group of Puritans um, to eventually make their way over to um, to the wild wilderness of across the Atlantic? Are you are you dropping a broad hint to talk about the Pilgrims at this point? Or are we are we are we leaving them out? I couldn't I couldn't quite tell from where you were going. Well, that that's right. And, I mean, that really raises one of the the questions that your your book starts to talk about is. Um, Puritans, pilgrims, separatists, how are these groups related? Um, I, I know this is, a, this is an ongoing debate in, in the, the literature, but are, are the, the separatists Puritans or, or what is their relationship to, uh, to the Puritan movement? Okay, so to, well, to make the book work, I need to, I mean, there, as you know, there's about like, you know, 20 million definitions of Puritan. <laughs> yeah. And and the thing is, is that to 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 have a to make the book work, I have to use a de- a, a definition which continues to be heuristically useful, yeah. you know, for the for the full duration of the book. I mean, it's, it's like it's like once you start including Quakers in your definition of Puritans, you know, you don't you, you don't have something which is heuristically very useful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't you can't really analyze people's behavior on the basis of this definition without it just being so amorphous that you've not really accomplished anything. So, so it was the, the Puritans, the Puritans had a commitment to, to a national church mm-hmm. or national church framework. And they had then the idea that this framework was supposed to be Calvinist. And this framework started out with a fairly clear sense that, you know, God only wants one church in any kingdom, which is actually devoted to him. So it's, it's not particularly tolerant. And the separatists, the separatists, the separatists are groups, groups of Puritans who start to emerge in the 1560s who just say, this isn't working. This is way too slow. We've got to stop compromising with them. We have to separate and start our own churches. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've given up with the idea of a national reformation. They've just. Be, they've just have have created these churches which bear absolutely no resemblance to anything that could possibly happen in the real world. We're going to be the vehicle for it, because because most 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 Puritans look at separating from the Church of England as as a heinous thing to do, and and so with 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 the with James starting to crack down on Puritans, small groups of Puritans think that. Okay, this is not working in England. We are going to go to Holland, where there is in certain regions of it a fair amount of religious toleration, so we can do what we want. And there, and you have you have what amounts to moderate extreme separatists want nothing to do with Puritans who will not cut all ties with the Church of England. Then you get moderate separatists who are willing to have religious worship with people who have not broken those ties. And there's a kind of fruitful interaction between the the extreme puritans who go over and the moderate separatists who are willing to talk with them 
and that, that out of that grows the congregationalism, which emerges in New England. That's, that's right. And so as we kind of move into that sex, second section of your book, um, one of the figures who straddles that divide um, that you draw attention to is John Cotton, this um, Puritan minister in Boston, Lincolnshire, who um, finds his way um, immigrating over to the Massachusetts Bay, um, Boston. So, so how does John Cotton um, become uh, a major voice in this story? Because it seems like in the second section of your book, um, it's really a story of tension between uh, congregationalist independent faction within Puritanism and the more moderate Presbyterian. Um, okay, for, for your listeners, I should explain that, that Cotton is, again, he is picked as a figure because he does a lot of work over a lot of different areas because he's, he is a very important minister in England. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he is really admired as a scholar. He's admired as a sort of exemplar of practical Christianity. He, he is, there are bishops who like John Cotton. And he, he, he's sort of an example of, of the kind of flexibility that was in the Church of England at one point, if you were lucky. And so he, he, is, he, is, pra- he is practicing nonconformity to the ceremonies in, in Boston, Lincolnshire, but he's able to pull strings and avoid getting the consequences for them. And so that's sort of, that's sort of the Church of England working at its best at this point. But it's, and, and he's also building up a rep, an international reputation as a, as, as a scholar, a scholar of the apocalypse. His, his manuscripts circulate for a lot of money, and, and people come from all over Europe to actually study with him. So, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a super interesting guy, and, it, it, and then he gets alienated. He gets alienated in the early 1630s, and the stakes rise and rise for him. And then it looks like he's going to be hauled in front of Laud's court, Archbishop Laud's court, and the consequences are not going to be very nice for him. And it's at that point where he starts to think, maybe I should leave. Um, so then once, once Cotton moves uh, to Boston, he becomes part of, a, he, so he's alienated again, initially in a controversy that occurs um, with some of his parishioners uh, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, what does that uh, antinomian controversy show about the tensions within Puritanism as it exists in New England during that yeah, period? Yeah, just just a little backstory here. It's it's a cotton. The New Englanders had set up what was called Congregationalism, which means that they believe that every single church is autonomous. It's independent of every other church, and the relationships that churches have are fraternal relationship. They are they're kind of they're friendly with each other because they're all good Christians and they want to work together, but there's no coercive element tying them together. And Cotton was originally skeptical about congregationalism. Mm-hmm. And, and in 1633, with, with you know, the, the heat on him, and he, he does, has no place else to go, he goes to Massachusetts, and then he helps to get congregationalism focused in Massachusetts. Everything seems to be going well. The specific controversy that that you're referring to is is a burning issue in puritanism is the process of salvation yeah but how do you how it's they're predestinarians they believe that it's it's like you've been predestined to go to heaven or hell and and you can in this lifetime know which place you're going to end up in and so the and so the, the question is what are the signs by which you actually 
do this. And there, there are countercurrents in, in Puritanism themselves. There's a vast number of countercurrents and disagreements about it. But there is a particular strand of Puritanism which claims that any attempt to look at your own behavior and say that this is signs that you're saved is a bad thing because for a whole variety of reasons, it's kind of leading you back to Catholicism. And so the only, the only way you can know you're saved is if you have a kind of direct apprehension in some form or another of, of how you're saved. And I'm getting really tongue-tied here because this is actually so complicated. Right. If I, you know, I don't want to drag in John Calvin and William Perkins and all this kind of stuff. But the gist of it is, is that, is that mainstream Puritanism tended to emphasize self-examination with any kind of direct apprehension being sort of icing on the cake. And the fear was, is that if you rely on the direct apprehension, you're cutting yourself off from scrutiny of your behavior. And since all human beings are reprobates and basically damned, that's an extremely dangerous thing to do and a dishonor to God. So cotton, but they're, they're the countercurrents which exist in England come over to America and, and, and they establish roots in his congregation Cotton is actually, Cotton is sympathetic to this. He doesn't recognize the danger. He starts adjusting his preaching to, to accommodate people in his, in his uh, church, whereupon lots of other people get really mad at him. And then this becomes an enormous controversy that almost drives him out of the colony. And, and one of the things, one of the things about it that's interesting is that you can see that different Different Puritans have different levels of toleration for, for different opinions. Yeah. And so some people are driving this, this controversy to a, a outcome which could have been disastrous. Other people are trying to moderate it. John Cotton is trying to figure out where he fits in this whole business. And there's a lot going on. There, right. It, was, it right. was a killer to try to fit that into. I don't know how many pages it, take, it takes up in the book, but boy, oh boy, that was a challenge. Well, meanwhile, while this this conflict is playing out in Massachusetts, and in some ways you're showing how it's testing um, the congregationalist ability to to manage themselves, um, it's being observed by Puritans in the old world, and um, you have different groups of of moderate Puritans and more radical Puritans who are kind of taking sides and and really starting to have their own tensions between the Puritans and the Congregationalists um, through the, the Civil Wars. So how, how are you seeing the, the Puritan center of gravity shifting um, in, during the Civil War period? And do you think there was ever a, a hope or a possibility of Puritanism having any unity or coherence? Because it seems like the story that you're showing is that this is just a, um, once, once we get the, the bishops and the prayer book and eventually the king out of the way, all, it just exposes that the Puritans can't agree about anything. Is that, is that a fair reading of the second section of your, of yeah, your story? That, I mean, that gets into the whole, whole politics of the civil war, right? Because it's, it's when, when parliament, parliament is actually declared war against the king in 1642. It's there's, there's all kinds of, radicals come out of the woodwork because the 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 repression that's keeping them down is gone and the, these are people these these are people some of them appalled they some of them appalled you know they appalled different puritans to different degrees but they're not necessarily what any puritan actually wanted yeah. but you can't actually get rid of them 
And so there, there are these really strange alliances taking place. That's right. And, and the, the president, the president, the congregationalists do not want a national church in the, the accepted sense of the word. They want individual congregations, but they still seem to be envisioning some sort of national structure around it in a very amorphous way. The Presbyterians want a national church mm-hmm. and, and the congregationalists, their allies, the people who are actually allies are people, you know, they, they, they have bedfellows that they wouldn't necessarily want to sleep with in, in other circumstances, but they don't really have any choices, which is also connected to what, you know, the dynamics of what's going on in the army, parliamentary army and the rise of Cromwell. And then it also gets, because Scotland gets pulled into the mix and boy, this stuff gets complicated to, to produce a, a nice narrative out of it, which is why Christopher loved the Presbyterian minister who, who at the beginning, at the beginning of this, of this period has high hopes for what's going to happen. And then gets more and more appalled at the Congregationalists and the sex. And then everything comes to a head in the early 1650s mm-hmm. where the Presbyterians are aligning themselves with Scotland congregationalists are aligning themselves with the sex the the congregations are basically in power and love gets its head chopped off so yes that does create bad blood cutting off cutting off a minister's head does tend to annoy people understandably so um the 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 puritan you know very tense uh if coalition is even the right word, um, is increasingly fighting throughout this period. Um, Oliver Cromwell dies. How how does the the Congregationalist Purit uh, Presbyterian tension end up resulting in their whole project imploding and the monarch restored? Yeah, I do have to. I have to reassure anyone who just you know heard what sounded like incoherence. The, the 1640s are, are basically done through following Christopher Love. Yeah. And you're watching, you're watching Christopher Love trying to deal with a situation that is, that is absolutely appalling him and how he gets into conflicts with people he hadn't anticipated getting in conflicts with and what drives him to finally decide that his principles require him to have his head cut off. And also just his, his descriptions that he's actually welcoming now what he perceives as martyrdom at the hands of the enemies of God. So it's, it's, it's not, his fellow Puritans. Yeah, his fellow Puritans, but they are the enemies of God now at right. this point in his mind. And then, and then after he dies, it's other Presbyterians release his books, making it very clear that he's a martyr, Yeah, which is actually an incredibly heavy thing to say, because if you're a martyr, that's saying awful things about the person who actually martyred you. Yeah. And so that, that is, that is the thread that ties it together. And all the, all the other stuff kind of, hopefully gracefully just falls off as you're, as you're watching what's happening to Christopher Love. And Christopher Love is a neglected figure and there should be a lot more attention paid to him. And there tends not to be because the focus of historians tends to be on the radicals, whereas most, most Puritans would have supported Christopher Love mm-hmm. and not the people who cut his head off. That's right, because you, you throughout are commenting that this, even though the Puritans hold power for... A little more than a decade. It's 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 not particularly popular. Is that right? Oh yeah, no, not at all popular. I think I think you know John Cotton is watching this whole mess from New England. He says it's like maybe what is it? One in ten people actually support Parliament. 
Yeah. And so on, on the one hand, this is this is great. We have no king. This is a republic. On the other hand, the only thing that's holding it in place is that they have the army. Right. And with with the death of of Cromwell and the the kind of failures of his son to hold the the coalition, um, this the Puritan governmental project implodes. Um, what happens in the restoration? As you've noted, that Puritans don't just magically become nonconformists what is the what's the path forward for the for these warring uh coalitions within the puritan project well this is this is where i mean you can i think you can legitimately say that by the restoration the congregationalists have given up on the idea of any kind of national church structure right it's just not going to work for them they still in the 1650s they still had hopes that there could be a kind of a a you know, supportive government and a national theology, which was Calvinism. But, you know, that's not going to happen and they're not going to get a supportive government in the 1660s. So they've kind of they've kind of abandoned that project in England, but not in New England. And 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 yet they still are they their closest ties, religious ties and just general affect ties are with the Presbyterians who have not who cannot reconcile themselves to giving up the idea of a puritanized national church. Mm-hmm. And so you, you kind of have this, this, this semi-tortured relationship between the two groups as, as the Presbyterians want to reform the church and the congregations are kind of a drag on their aspirations. The congregations want toleration. So they tend to undercut the Presbyterians efforts to try to work out some accommodation with the powers that be and at the same time, they still are genuinely carrying the sense that we're all godly and we have an awful lot in common and Christians shouldn't be doing this to each other. So they're sending out feelers to try to see, you know, can they reconcile with each other and worship together again? That's right. And then, uh, of course, this is all happening in England. How How is the, the restoration of the monarchy and this uh, really tense um, intolerance and kind of growing of religious opinions and pluralism how does this all start to to land in uh especially in massachusetts but i guess in the other uh puritan sympathetic colonies yeah i we should say again off the bat for your for the listeners is that massachusetts was far and away the most important colony in new england Mm -hmm. in terms of population in terms of economics in terms of who is there so it's the the other colonies are sort of appendages especially if you're looking at this from England, it's like Massachusetts is the main colony you want to get control of. That's right. And, and the other thing about Massachusetts, which is intensely interesting, is that they had managed to convince themselves due to the charter that they had that they were effectively quasi-independent, mm-hmm. that they didn't actually have to obey anything that the English government told them. And needless to say, that did not play well in England in the 1660s, and there were also local tensions about that. So so part of this period is the Massachusetts government playing a cat and mouse game with the English government with, with rising local opposition to it. Part of it is about the fact that, that, that they, they're simply one of the consequences of the mid-century period is that there are now too many Puritan dissidents in Massachusetts for them to be any kind of consensus on what to do with them. And you also have the Quakers who positively invite martyrdom and, and, and four of them actually got it. They got, they, they got hanged and they, they aren't going away. 
And the Quakers initially think, then the Quakers initially think that Massachusetts is going to fall to them just because the spirit will speak to the people of Massachusetts and they will all become Quakers. And by the 1660s, everyone's just getting exhausted. It's like the Quakers are realizing that, that you know, the, the people of Massachusetts are just not getting the inner light. And the people of Massachusetts are just realizing we can't sort of like hang this problem away. And otherwise, you know, people are establishing social relationships. And so the zeal for persecution, which, which the Massachusetts government has, is starting to die down. And there's also pressure coming from across the ocean that it doesn't play well with the English government that they're hanging Quakers. They can jail them, but they can't hang them. And so everyone is starting very, very reluctantly to learn to live with each other. But the powers that be don't want this to be happening. And they're, they're still, they're still the, the, the ministers will, will say, why isn't the government cracking down more on, on, on the dissidents in our society? But it's just, they're getting a practical, to- an on-the-ground toleration, which hasn't yet been fully integrated into their understandings of what their society is supposed to be like. How do you see the, the story of Puritanism ending? I, you, know, you, you start to draw how it, uh, some threads into the eventual, like, uh, awakenings and, and revivals that'll come in the 18th century. But what what's the main thing that in the story that you're telling uh, means that Puritanism, the, the project of Puritanism has has largely okay. failed? Yeah. Okay, that, that's the Glorious Revolution, 1689. It's it, it 1688, rather, and, and William takes over the throne of England, and William is a Dutchman, and Puritans have really high hopes for him because he's a Presbyterian and they think, oh, finally we'll get it. And, and so there, there's tremendous hope. Massachusetts had its charter taken away in 1684 and there are people in Massachusetts who think they will get their charter back the way they had it and they can go on with their quasi-independent way. And, they can, and there, there's, even, there's even some hopes that we can finally reestablish an intolerant Massachusetts. But then that, for a whole variety of reasons, that doesn't work. It's, there's all kinds of political reasons that early promises that a reformation of the Church of England will take place don't happen. Massachusetts doesn't get the kind of independence that it used to have and tolerations written into the charter. So that's kind of that if you look at Puritanism as a political project with a religious foundation, mm-hmm. then then you, you can trace a line from 1540s to to 1690s and this and it's it's a similar line on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. But if you but with when the political project is more or less ended this doesn't mean that the religious project has gone away. But that's a different story. That's right. And and, and so and so there is there is very much the legacy is there. I mean the puritans the puritans are you know proto-pietists and and their books continue to be read. They continue to be appreciated. There is, you know, John Wesley translates translates the Calvinists out of some Puritan, Puritan books because he, he, you know, he he likes their piety, and and you know, it's it's down to today. They still are very much a kind of religious, spiritual, cor- cultural presence in in the evangelical movement on both sides of the Atlantic. Although I also say that that particular story is also more complicated than I can possibly say in, in you know, fifteen right. seconds. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a it's a fascinating and a fun ride of a book. I mean, we've covered 
here a century and a half and in under an hour and we've we've left a lot of fun and juicy stories and anecdotes on the floor yeah can i can i look i, I have to add at this point that they, the salem witchcraft trials are in it yeah you will learn about the salem witchcraft trials if you read this book because i i knew that general readers would be very disappointed <laughs> if yeah. the salem witchcraft trials were not in this book but and and the the thing about the salem witchcraft trials is that they're usually treated as this is sort of the quintessence of of Puritanism left to their own devices. Puritans would just go around hanging masses of people. But in fact, the reason why they take place is that Puritans, Puritans have actually lost control of the colony. Right. And there's kind of like a, a legal chaos that, and a totally inept royal governor who would have never gotten elected if they were in control of their own destiny. And it's that particular combination is the fact that you're moving, it's sort of like the, 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 defining moment of the transition from puritanism to post-puritanism is the salem witchcraft trials well michael you've been so generous with your time coming to talk with us about this book i'm, I'm curious uh what are you working on now what can we be looking forward to from you in the future yeah i've got i've got um i'm really really interested in issues about um baptism and church admission in the um in the 1640s, 1650s, 1660s, and in Massachusetts. And my interest in that is particularly comes from the fact that one of the things about Massachusetts is interesting is that there's just been too many histories of it written. And the, the histories of this particular, these particular things were written, started to be written in the 1680s, at which point it's like the issues that initially motivated them weren't there. And so, and so, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a like a pristine, pristine experience of these controversies as they felt on the ground, which is which is different from the way it's told. So that's interesting to me. I've gotten off on a different little project. Um, if you do, if you do congregationalism, you kind of have Westminster Assembly envy, because Westminster Assembly is, which is where Presbyterianism at some of its foundational argument um, documents were created. That is extremely well documented. Extremely, anything you—it's practically anything you want to learn about it, you can learn about it there. What was going on with the debates? Where the two congregational equivalents are really badly documented, and you have no idea what the debates were about. And I'm I'm looking at a way to get um, some some leverage into what was going on in the Cambridge platform to the way it assimilated a book by John Cotton, Keys of the Kingdom which actually played a significant role in the Westminster Assembly, but it's, it only recently has been appreciated for what it's done there. And so I'm kind of using that as a vehicle to get to the Cambridge platform. And it's totally fascinated me, and I'm not really sure that will interest more than five other people, but I'm really enjoying doing it. Well, I'm at least one of those five people. This has been a conversation with Michael P. Winship, author of Hot Protestants, a History of Puritanism in England and America. You can get your copy from Yale University Press. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, the best thing that you can do is think of a friend who might find the conversation that Michael and I had here today interesting and send them a link. Visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com to find more interviews in whatever interest you might have. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.